0: Welcome back to the cycling tips podcast everybody I am Kaylee Fritz, and we've got a great episode for you today with a special guest who I'll introduce in just a moment Abby Mickey how are you today
1: hello yeah
2: good day mate
0: are you in Australia what, what, what's going on down there
2: I've been hanging out with Lauren Rowney too much <laughs> I think you're just trying to make our Australia's listeners feel welcomed aren't you
1: I mean, if we could have Ian Trellor on the podcast every week, then that would make everyone happier. But since he can't, I will
2: do my best. I uh, believe it or Your
0: accent was really spot on.
2: Believe it or not, that's how, ex- that's how Ian sounds. I, I, I used to work with him in a bike shop and there he uses Bonzer, might, uh put another <laughs> shrimp on the barbie. Oh, 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 them phrases all the time. Well, there you go. <laughs> We got a fantastic
0: episode for you today. Uh Abby is for some reason Australian for unknown reasons. And of course, you just heard the dulcet tones of Shoddy Dave. Shoddy, how are you? Good
2: I mate. How you doing? No, I'm smashing. I'm really good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we have a special guest today. We we wrangled him in. Abby, who did you go and find for today's podcast?
1: I searched far and wide. <laughs> to find a professional to join our podcast today, since we are Sans or as he would say, Sin, Dane, Cash, and also James. Toms, hello?
3: Howdy.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Toms. It's been a while. We
1: got Australian, we got Wild Wild West. Howdy.
0: We're ready to go. We're ready to go. All right, we're going to get into this episode. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got the Vuelta to unpack a little bit, and specifically some, some drama from the final stages. Uh, Miguel Angel Lopez dropping out of the Vuelta. And, wow, there's been a bunch of chatter back and forth since then. We'll get into that in a little bit. We're going to hear from Jack Haig, who I guess kind of caused the drama, didn't he? In in a certain way. He was the one that created the split that got rid of Miguel Angel Lopez. Uh, We're going to hear from him later in the show. Nice long interview there. We've got the Serratizit Challenge. Abby's going to update us on what's going on there. And the Benelux Tour, which as we mentioned in a previous episode, is a pretty good proxy, maybe prep race, for Worlds. And we're going to talk about who was looking good there, who wasn't looking good, what we think ahead of the World Championships, which are coming up really, really soon, and then, of course, it's Eurobike time right now. Trade shows not sort of fully, fully back, but we did send Shoddy Dave up there, and we're going to hear about well everything you saw in Friedrichshafen.
2: Oh, didn't see as the case would be, <laughs>
0: <laughs> or didn't see as the case would be. Yeah, yeah. The um, I was actually surprised that Eurobike happened at all this year, but it did. So we sent somebody, and that was you. Uh, we've also got Ronan McLaughlin at the IAA show right now, which is a mobility show. Uh, he's, I think he's mostly been looking at cars. We sent him to look at bicycle related things, and most of his Instagram has been cars so far. But hopefully, he turns it around in the next couple days.
1: I don't think he's even looking at anything. I just think he's just like hanging out in the quote unquote press buffet,
0: <laughs> eating the delicious food that BMW eating has been eating. Spoonfuls made
1: for him. of things like yeah. one spoon with like a
0: <laughs> tiny bit of food on it. It's a rough life, Ronan has. But before we go anywhere, Shoddy, what are we learning about continental today?
2: All right, and so we know that cycling tips is all about road cycling with it with a bit of gravel thrown in for good measure here and there, and we've talked about continental's road, gravel and even urban tires quite a bit over the past couple of months. But those are But those are only part of Conti's bicycle tyre range. Yet we're going to be talking about mountain bike tyres today. The German handmade mountain bike tyres are built for every style from cross-country to full downhill. And you know it's a German brand. When you have a tyre called the... Should I do it in an accent here? The Kaiser. the Kaiser. the Kaiser.
0: (laughs) Nailed it again. Man, we're so good at accents on this podcast.
2: It won't come as any surprise to regular listeners that Conti's mountain bike tyres also use Continental's famous back chili compound. But did you know that Conti mountain bike tyres borrow tech from the car industry and their car tyres? Maybe Ronan can pop around and check out what they've, uh, what they've got going on over there. Apex stability, the tyre in turns, reduces puncture risk and keeps the tyre on your rims. It's a technology that makes sense for high volume bicycle tyres. So, when you're kitting out your mountain bike tyre, make sure you check out Conti's range of mountain bike tyres. There we go. Thank you to
0: Continental for sponsoring today's episode.
2: Now, hold on. Let's get into hold it. Hold on. I was, when I was handed this call sheet today, and Abby said we're going to be running through um, chunky stuff for the ad. I thought, hang on a minute, is Ab talking about me when you compare me up against Tom's? But no, we're talking about ch- chunky tyres. <laughs> have you not been riding as much as you would have wished, Hey. Uh, right now? N- n- nine weeks in with a new little girl, it's a definite no. <laughs> you know all about that, though, don't That's you?
0: surprising. I do indeed. I do indeed. All right, let's get into today's episode. Should we start with the Vuelta? Abby? Who won the Vuelta?
1: Uh, <laughs> Primoz Roglic won the Vuelta, which I think we kind of all saw coming, uh, I don't know, stage what, two, three? When, like two,
0: probably two. Yeah.
1: yeah um, at, at the Olympics, we'd already were like, oh, yeah, he'll probably win his, what, fifth, sixth, seventh Vuelta, um, so... He he did win. He won by four minutes and forty-two seconds, which hilariously, when I was looking up the results from the Tour de France, that was that would have been like sev- seventh place, is that far down? Um, I think on the Tour de France between one and seven. And at the at the Vuelta, he won by by that margin. So pretty incredible ride by Primos Roglic. Um, he clearly thrives in Spain. And, uh, I mean, since we last recorded a podcast, like we don't have to get super into the, the, uh, every single stage, but there was some really, really exciting stages between last week and this week. Um, notably the two high mountain stages, Primoz Roglic one stage 17 and Michael Engel Lopez, uh, one stage 18 Magnus Court Nielsen took his third stage win And almost his fourth in the time trial, actually. Um, But the last kind of five stages were really exciting. Really, the biggest... One of the biggest stories coming out of the race was actually stage 20, where it wasn't... It was a hilly enough stage that there were splits in the peloton, and what happened seemed like there was a move from... Well... Haley, do you want to dig, get into the Miguel, Miguel Angel Lopez Movistar nonsense?
0: Yeah, we don't need to get into the like the, the real details of sort of how it formed so much. As, as there, basically, there was a split. Uh, I think Jack Haig was the one that was pushing onward and the moment of that split and Jack Haig was obviously also sitting just behind uh, the Movistar duo who were sitting in second and third coming into that stage. Uh, Enric Moss made the split and Lopez, Superman Lopez, did not and that's sort of where all of this came from right and was it like 15 20k later there was like some chatter between lopez and the team car There was a whole bunch going on and all of a sudden we see lopez getting off his bike and quitting the bicycle race uh there has since been a whole lot of chatter back and forth about this uh there was well is Zue the the owner of Movistar has spoken on it there's been a bunch of chatter within the Colombian media that perhaps Movistar wanted Enric Mas to keep that second place and were worried about Lopez in the final time trial and so they left him behind there hasn't been a whole lot of evidence for that but I think kind of the more interesting question here is is what leads an athlete to sort of up and and leave a bicycle race like that, right? Like the sort of, he said, she said, like back and forth kind of drama, I think is is, is less interesting because frankly, the, the real truth we'll never really know because they're both going to say opposite things. But what, like what leads an athlete sitting in, well, prior to that, third overall, still would have held on to fourth or fifth or something that's a very good result for Lopez. What leads them to step out of a bike race in that manner, uh, I should say that Lopez has since basically apologized he's you know probably has some regrets, I would imagine uh but yeah i I guess i I, I more wanted to dig into like the like what's the psychology there, and maybe Tom's can help us out with this because y- you know you have you've thrown so much of your of your life into these particular moments, and it was one split, right it was one split that he couldn't close took him from you know a podium and a grand tour to well fourth fifth sixth whatever non-podium obscurity right i think for a rider like that it was sort of a podium or nothing right so what's the what is the what's what's the what what does that feel like what is what's the psychology behind that toms can you can you shed any light on this and sort of like the dealing with disappointment kind of aspect of professional sport well, I mean,
4: <clears throat> maybe the closest we'll get to the truth is the movie star Netflix documentary. <laughs> I can't wait <laughs> that I that I actually kind of now want to watch because I've never watched any of it, but maybe it will be interesting now. Um, but I think the hardest thing to get over in that situation is just that it wasn't your physical capabilities um, that took you from that podium spot or whatever spot, but it was like things that you cannot influence. Same with, I mean, I think we've seen Miguel Angelopez López after a little crash punch another rider. I think that was what happened in one of the Grand Tours, where obviously it's also not his performance really affecting it. It's just someone else's mistake, someone else's undoing that costs him the day or the result or whatever. And I think, yeah a lot of times that's what's harder to get over than being just not good enough.
1: I mean, that initial split um, when the the general classification rode up, rode away and he was stuck in a group with Bernard Allen and stuff, I don't know if that was he couldn't close the gap or he hesitated because Enric Mass was riding up the road and he just maybe didn't realize what was that the, the people that he was with didn't have the legs to pull it back. And he did. It seems like based on his performance throughout the race, he had the legs to be able to close that gap, but the team was telling him, and this is where we get into the hearsay, right? Because the team we we've heard from his coach that the team told him to sit up, um, in that group and just like coast along in that group and watch his, his podium finish right away from him. And at that point, that's, you know, if you're a professional bike racer and your team tells you, "Hey, we want you to do this," even if you're like, "I don't like that call," you do
0: it. They've also said, though. I mean, so Uduak came out and said, "Well, he just had to close the gap early on, right?" And I think basically, like this is this is where the tension is. Where if he w- if he had been able to cross that gap as soon as it opened, this would all be a non-story, right? He would have he would have been up with Enric Mass, and it would have been a non-story the team is saying that he was unable to close that gap. And in fact, Lopez even kind of said he was unable to close that gap. The, there's a quote from him that that came out Saturday evening. We saw ourselves getting into a difficult position when some of the best in the GC went ahead of us. Bahrain played its cards well. And it's hard to close a gap like that, even if it's small at this point in the Vuelta. Legs are so tired. The level is so high. And obviously no one was going to help us out closing that small gap in that moment that makes it sound like he couldn't even if he'd wanted to close that gap. And then once the gap had opened up, then he gets the call to sit up. Obviously, Enric Mass up front is still riding, and so the two riders are getting very different team orders and unfortunately for Lopez, he he got he got the brunt of it. He got the worst of it uh and ended up well, and ended up staring down the barrel at at a loss of a podium as he said Tom, sort of partially of his own doing but also partially not because you never like he could have chased back later in the race you don't really know but if he's given the order not to that was i I imagine a hard thing to swallow
4: yeah i think well i didn't see the whole stage but from the looks of things and you guys correct me if i was wrong on this um it looked like that point in the race they had done like a really hard climb but the the section where actually the selection happened was not that hard. It was more roly, more like false flats. Uh, or let's say the speed was at least higher than at normal Vuelta grades. Thus, like there were attacks going and Bernal attacked, got brought back, and then the counter went and that was the right counter. And obviously in that situation, even if Lopez had made an effort in the first move, I'm sure he could have closed the gap if he was just there. It wasn't really, um, yeah, like 100% physical. It was like tactics that really let him down. And that's why I'm saying that in that case, it's harder to accept than just getting dropped on a 10% grade where everyone's going all out.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah, if it's, if it's just, just mano a mano, it's a different thing, right? Versus Versus... Tactics or team tactics or whatever. Uh, how do you think he's feeling today? It's Tuesday morning. Not great. You great. You think he's bummed about that decision? I mean, is he regretting that decision?
1: I mean, he... Well, according to reports, he didn't go to the team dinner after the Vuelta, um, which is kind of like... Again, if you're on a team, even if you've had a bad race, you kind of suck it up because... I mean, you've he's done the whole Vuelta, whereas his team rode for him. They sacrificed for him, and he did win a stage. So uh, regardless of how you feel, you hold it in until the next day. I mean, of course, the athletes are humans. Like, emotions are totally normal. But you also have to keep in mind all of the teammates that you have around you and respect them, which is basically what his uh, team owner guy – said today uh as it. we're recording this yeah. so Tuesday yeah in a Spanish radio interview that um he was that what he did was disrespectful of his teammates and now his contract is in jeopardy so yeah i'm sure he's not feeling too great about about the decision right now do
0: do you think you 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 mentioned sort of human the fact that athletes are human um obviously it's true uh so does something like this <laughs> oh <laughs> Tom's is making his did he just did he just short circuit over there (laughs) i think so (laughs) let me just (laughs) (laughs) plug him back in Abby. plug him back in (laughs) no but uh, so so does this make lopez more relatable does it make like is he going to gain fans from this do you think or is this you know it was it was disrespectful to his team and his teammates and and you know, people are not are not going to like him as a result. Because because I find myself kind of like, yeah, it was not a great moment, you know. But who hasn't had a not great moment doing something, whether it's bike racing or anything else, where you know you're a little bit embarrassed about your reaction in the in the moment to something. Who hasn't done that? Does does this make him more almost more relatable than if he had just finished in fourth?
3: Maybe,
2: but I think it'll depend on. How you come at the sport and what nationality you are as well, and how uh heavily you follow the movie star team. Because you you look at that team and they've always had this well, over the past what wanna say six seasons at least, have had this very a lot of infighting. And still always. still Well, you you go back to when it was Il Belair's, all the way back to Blooming I mean, Reynolds Day, Bonesto day, and they, it was a solid Spanish team. It still is a solid solid Spanish team, but it definitely seems to be a lot more drama, whether that's down to social media, Netflix, with us being able to see that, or, um, yeah, there being a lot more media at the races, being able to see that, we won't know. But I think uh, I think it depends how you come out as a fan, whether you're hardcore Spanish fan, hardcore movie star fan, or sort of, yeah, another nationality.
0: I mean you can see that in the, in the media right like like I said the colombian media has obviously come to lopez's defense uh colombian cycling media in particular tends to be even more kind of cheerleadery than than some other nations uh i would say well every every nation's media is somewhat somewhat of a cheerleader for their own riders but uh the colombians in particular uh, are even more so which i kind of love actually but they've, they've basically come out and said that there was a conspiracy on the part of the Spanish owners of the team and the Spanish GSs of the team and the Spani- the Spaniards in the team to prevent Lopez from overtaking Moss in that final time trial. Now, again, there's no evidence for this. The I don't think the, just watching the uh, the racing would suggest that that's not really how it went down. But still, there is, like you say, it kind of depends where you come from, who you started out supporting, where you end up at the end of this thing. But I do I do genuinely think that for for a certain, for some fans, watching riders be human, maybe not in this particular way. This particular way has a little bit, um, I don't know, not as inspiring as some other means of, of being human. But I think watching athletes be human makes you a fan of them. I think that that's actually one of the sources of fandom and particularly in cycling, because it's such a hard sport that when you see, when you see riders crack, when you see the, the facade break down and you see who they are on the inside, even just for a second, that makes you a fan of them. And so, yeah, I do wonder whether we end up with more Lopez fans at the end of this than, than before. I don't know. I feel like
1: cycling in general really values like, uh,
0: Stoicism,
1: unreasonable <laughs> expectations in in their athletes. Um, I mean, there's like Lefebvre fans out there who think that he's totally spot on about Sam Bennett and has every right to say everything he was saying over the summer about Sam Bennett. And I feel like that kind of that. <laughs> There's not a lot of them, though. <laughs> I mean, that's debatable. I tweeted about it one time, and I had to mute my uh, my mentions for like three days afterwards. I mean, that's it's just like it is. Cycling in itself is like a very interesting. But I think, like if you're if you're kind of an American, if you're from like a softer nation, um, like us. Yeah, I mean, we we love underdogs. Look at us. Look at who we. Pick to win these races we love underdogs i feel like he's not necessarily an underdog but he shows some similar traits to an underdog in this particular instance like yeah. well
0: and, and it's it's this is a theme that's come up a bunch of times throughout the summer right i mean you, you can you can draw a pretty close line between between what happened at the Vuelta over the weekend and simone Biles at the olympics right like it's 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 a a topic and a theme that keeps coming up in the last year or so of athletes just kind of standing up and saying like, I couldn't handle this moment and I don't want to handle this moment. And I shouldn't have to handle this moment. And that being okay. Right. Granted again, Lopez's situation slightly different. I think like not going to the team dinner is not a great look at the end. Uh, leaving the race entirely is obviously not a great look in general. And in particular, given the sort of culture of cycling and, and the, the hard man aesthetic and things like that. Anyway, we, we, well, c- we can move on. We can move on from this. Before we move be-
1: on, I, I do want to say, like, I, I want to say, like, on the record, I have no problem with him uh, DNFing the race because of, like, human being human. The moment for me where I'm like, I don't know if this makes him more relatable is not going to the team dinner. If I had been a domestique at a race and my team leader dropped out on the second to last day after I'd like put in all of my hard work for them to get us move up or win a stage or whatever, and they didn't show up to the team dinner, I would be like, if they dropped out, it would be like, dude, so sorry. Like we'll get them next time. They then didn't show up to the team dinner. It'd be like, what the hell was all my hard work for? You know, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think the classy thing would have been to go, you know, go to the team dinner that night and congratulate congratulate Enric Moss and thank all the domestiques for all the work that they'd done and probably apologize for for uh you know basically not sticking with it after all the work that, that his teammates had done. But at the same time, I think that if he had done that, the rest of the team probably would have rallied around him and said, you know, like you said, we'll get him next time. I would agree with that. All right, let's move on from the Vuelta. As I said earlier, we are going to hear from none other than Jack Haig. We'll hear from him at the very end of today's show. Of course, Haig finished in third, 7.40 back on Primoz Roglic. Matt DeNeuf spoke with him. We'll hear from him in a bit. But first, we got two other races to chat through. The Saratisic Challenge. Abby, what happened?
1: Yeah, it was a really interesting race with four pretty dynamic stages, uh, for a full recap, check out the freewheeling podcast this week. Uh, we dug into everything that happened at the race, had a couple of debates that weren't really debates cause we all agree with each other. So I think we need to, uh, I don't know, get on me if we on the podcast to talk about the, um, whether or not uphill time trials should be a thing, but yeah, it was the the first stage was one of the most interesting ones with the breakaway going away with Marlon Rusa in it, who is the silver medalist from the Olympic Games. And then she won solo by a minute and a half, um, which is a very interesting way to start the race and some incredibly odd tactics from the rest of the teams to not immediately chase that down. Uh the overall was won by Anouk Van Vluten. She won two stages, the uphill time trial on stage two. And the stage three mountainous day. She won by almost three minutes that day. It was a pretty impressive performance. And uh, the final stage was won by Lotto Capecchi, who's back after crashing in the Olympic uh, track Omnium.
0: Good. Glad to hear she is back. Yeah, some very strange tactics. The lack of chasing. You'd think they would learn from the Olympic Games, right? It's like, maybe don't do that anymore.
3: Maybe well, just we pull have- back.
1: We have a couple of theories on the podcast. Um, one theory is that the women's races are th- th- the calendar is very poorly made. So the there's a pile of races in the spring, and then a pile of races end of season. And the combined effect of 2020 being like a very emotionally draining, but also physically draining year with all the races back to back last year. And then basically no rest, uh, before they started racing in 2021 means that a lot of people are fatigued and, uh, most of the Peloton has kind of just checked out at this point. Um, with, with, with the exception of, you know, Marlon Rusa and Annamie Van Vooden, who are absolutely destroying everybody and, uh, Allison Jackson. And there's a handful of riders that are still going really well at the moment, but, for the most part, the domestiques and and kind of the second tier riders get sent to every single race, and a lot of them are really tired right now. Um, Anna Van der is actually another one who's uh, she was the director at the CMAC Ladies Tour, one of the directors at the C-Mac Ladies Ladies Tour, getting ready for her twenty twenty two directorial debut, and then immediately went and raced Plouay. And then immediately went to the Saratazit Challenge and was in my preview, I said it was gonna be the last battle, the final Anamique Van Vluten versus Vanderbregen battle. And Vanderbregen was in a break on the final day, which a year ago, Anna Vanderbregen, in a break of four, um it's over. Like the race is up the road. But on in the on Sunday, she just wasn't, she wasn't a factor. And she's afterwards, she announced that she would no longer be competing in the European championships. So clearly ready to be done. As we said on freewheeling, she is well within her right to be done um, with the career that she's had, but it's uh it's definitely some, some interesting tactics going on in the women's Peloton at the moment.
4: I actually don't think that she's ready to be done. I think the reason why she's skipping Europeans is to win worlds you think? Yeah.
1: But she does not. She looks tired.
4: Yeah, that's why she's resting now in prep for Worlds.
1: But I think that she's going to go into Worlds and ride for her teammates.
0: If she wins the Worlds, if she wins Worlds, what happens? Like does she have to race? Does she have to keep racing? I feel like you can't win Worlds and then retire. That's rude
1: yeah i don't the
0: second place get to wear the rainbow bands all all year
1: (laughs) (laughs) i don't love that actually i mean it's not necessarily
4: (laughs) worlds but there's still a few races even roubaix
1: she's not doing roubaix
4: um that are left on the calendar so i think she's skipping europeans if europeans was her last race she would still race it but just because she still thinks that she can win something she i don't think she's that's why she's skipping Europeans.
1: I disagree. She's actually said in an interview that her last two races are Europeans and
2: Worlds.
0: Well, we're gonna find out in the next couple of weeks who's right.
2: <laughs> I'd love to be have, the, have this camera and this uh, the, the the audio stay on once we've finished the podcast and turned off just to see what happens in in their household. <sighs>
0: I, I, I actually didn't put this on my list of things to talk about for some reason, but I do. we need to, we need to give a shout out to Robin Carpenter, oh uh, who a won a fantastic stage of the Tour of Britain on Monday. Solo breakaway at the end there, came across the line, chucked his glasses into the crowd. Tom, did you race with Robin back in the day? I can't remember.
4: Yeah, we were teammates. He's known as the kid that grew up on the wall, just so people know.
1: That's the Philly the, cl- the Philadelphia Cycling Classic. Oh, the Manion um, Wall. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
4: he's the Manion kid.
0: Yeah, I used to live outside Philadelphia, I actually know the Manion Wall well.
4: He's going to love that I said this on the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I went watch Lance Armstrong race on the Manion one time when I was about 7. Yeah. I don't really remember it that much. I don't know that much about Robin. I've chatted with him a couple times over the years. Toms, what can you what can you tell me about him other than the fact that he's the kid that grew up on the wall?
1: And he makes really good sourdough bread.
0: That's an important
1: fact. That's true. Sure. Before it was cool.
4: <laughs> During the <laughs> yeah, I mean he had started it already before, but he had some sourdough challenges in San Diego where he used to live. Um for like Strava segments. If people won the segment, they would get sourdough bread from him. Um but he's a super smart kid. Uh he's a really nice kid as well. Um, I'm saying kid, but he's the same age as I am pretty much. <laughs> he's twenty-nine um, years old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, he's uh he's really strong. I mean, he's been in a lot of breakaways where he's just missed out on the win. He's been in breakaways where he has won. But uh yeah, it was uh, really nice to see him finally pull off a big one in Europe.
0: Yeah, he's been kind of like right at the edge for a very long time. I mean he's you know, he won the Tour of Alberta. He won well some a bunch of stuff in the United States in, in sort of 2016, 2017, Joe Martin, Cascade, things like that. But he's just been right on the edge of that sort of big European breakthrough, or I guess in this case, great British breakthrough. Yeah, uh, he still
4: has the win on the continent.
0: Yeah. No European win. Sorry, sorry, Robin. You're you're close. Anyway, it's good to see. Again, he's one of those guys who's just been sort of bouncing around at the very, sort of the periphery of, uh, I don't know, sort of the the average fan's, uh, the the group of riders that we all pay attention to. And I feel like we need to pay attention to Robin Carpenter. Great ride from him
1: yesterday. He's almost too smart for his own Uh good. Yeah.
0: you can't be too smart and be a bike racer. That's that's the problem.
4: But unfortunately, today, already he lost the leader's jersey.
0: Oh. Yeah, it was a team time trial today, won by Ineos, I believe, over Kooning Quickstep. Last on my list list of races here. Can
2: can I just ask a question, Tom's? Obviously Tour of Britain's close to my heart. How did a pro see it as a race? Cuz uh, it's on what's a 2.0, well 2.0 pro, pro race is it? So it's not the highest level obviously. But there's a, there's a mix in that, yeah, you've got the Great Britain team in there, you've got a lot of local British teams in there, but yeah, how do the pros see it as a race? Is, is it one people like going to or like avoiding because of the sometimes terrible weather?
4: Uh, actually, I am in the very unfortunate place where my, all, both my World Tour teams have not raced Tour Britain, so I never got to race it. But I have heard people complain about the transfers However, uh, most people that like to race a bike, not just ride a bike, enjoy the racing there just because it is more dynamic. There's only six riders, um, or at least used to be, I'm not 100% sure now, but there's only six riders in a team, thus the racing is less controlled. And when I was actually talking with the rally guys before uh, Tour of Britain, I just said, just make the brakes, you'll, you'll end up winning something because, yeah, there's always a breakaway that gets uh misjudged then makes it to a line or something
1: it's exciting racing because the roads are so narrow and windy so it's like it it completely changes how the racing is
4: it looks like fun racing i mean yeah
0: it is still six riders i just confirmed Tom's um combination of the the you know the routes and the wind and the, the lots of punchy climbs and narrow roads and then you've got small teams it makes for pretty pretty fantastic watching and like you said a little bit a little bit of chaos which allows folks like Robin Carpenter to w- take a breakaway with. Yeah,
2: I just I just wanted it from the horse's mouth because obviously I think I think the racing looks great myself over there. No know many of the roads myself, but if there is any professionals out there uh, struggling with them transfers, I can uh, highly recommend uh, Gin's dispatches from any of the multiple service stations that they'll stop off at.
0: <laughs> there you go, top tip, pro tip from our own Johnny Dave Everett. All right, last on my list here, the Benelux Tour. Now, this is particularly interesting because of its, well, there's a bunch of riders there who are probably eyeing up a world championship. It's close enough to Worlds. It's it's not quite sort of a final tune-up, but it is a late tune-up. Toms, you were there. Why don't you give us the rundown? What happened at the Benelux Tour? Sonny Cabrelli looked really good.
4: He did indeed. Um, Well, Bahrain in general looked very victorious. Um, No. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a hard race every year. And it combines some of the cobbles from the real cobble classics with some Ardennes racing and some Echelons. And first, they didn't disappoint straight away. We had echelons, we had a group of some 30 riders that um, arrived only in the front. Uh, A small TT as well in the mix, a lot of bonus seconds. There's actually quite a uh, one thing the race has that is very different from other races. There's the golden kilometer that's always within, let's say, last 30 kilometers of the race where there's three intermediate sprints within a kilometer uh so you have three times the possibility to get bonus seconds and because the race is very narrowly won the bonus seconds actually count um well i guess this year was bigger gap than usual but um yeah at least the top 10 is still within seconds of each other that's why the golden kilometer is always entertaining and they a lot of times put it in some odd places so it actually messes well for us it messes with the race but um from the riders that were looking good uh yeah definitely Sonny Colbrelli was looking good the won the race overall Mohoric his teammate finished second overall and uh, obviously also was riding real well Luke Durbridge was clearly opening his engine up because he was in the breakaway like five days well no but like quite a few days uh, first time I saw him was day f- four, I think, because first three, he was either up the road or it was a TT. Um, and uh, yeah, Sagan actually was also looking good. You don't see him uh, attacking. Usually he waits for the sprint and beats everyone there, but uh, he was actually, yeah, it looked like he was training for Worlds. And... Just because Worlds is in Belgium and is on roads like we did in a Benelux tour and is, uh, yeah, the style of racing, let's say, will be the same. I think that's why you can, yeah, pull some some names out of the top 10 of uh, Benelux and really look for them at Worlds Worlds.
0: I mean, Cabrelli was massively impressive, like you said. I mean, he had that—he had a solo breakaway victory. That's where he took the time uh, that he that he that he needed to win the overall. But yeah, it's always a very interesting race to me. Like Stefan Kung is up there as well. Riders who you're going to be looking at for not just the road race victory, but also the time trial victory at the World Championships were clearly trying to put some serious kilometers in their legs, some hard kilometers in their legs, coming in uh, ahead of the World Championships. I want to return to this golden kilometer thing real quick because that's crazy and awesome. And what, like, should they do that in more races? Like, what if they just did one of those in the Tour de France, for example, what would that do?
4: I mean, depends on what the seconds would would be. If it's just three to one, then in the Tour, it doesn't really matter that much. But I think what they're missing out actually is putting the golden kilometer also sometimes within the first 30Ks before the break goes uh, because then someone can sneak into the break and just sit up and not waste too much energy but uh, yeah some days it was like within the last 10k and then it gets pretty interesting but it I mean I like that I like that uh, they do this it's quite entertaining what if it was
1: like one minute (laughs) like
0: a minute a minute bonus yeah
4: then the fight for that would be more than for the stage
1: (laughs)
0: I mean in the Tour de France, not in Benelux. Even in the Tour de France, a minute is a huge. What if it was like, what if if they did like a 30-second time bonus every lap of the Champs-Élysées or something like that at the end of the Tour de France? Just see what happens.
4: Well, the problem with that is um, (laughs) that actually Benelux, the riders that are competing for the win can sprint, whereas in the Tour, riders competing for the win cannot.
0: <laughs> At all, <laughs> yeah. It would just be it would just be riders teammates going up and trying to take the seconds. Basically, well, I still love that Chris
1: Froome like trying to sprint on the Champs Elysees for thirty seconds.
0: That would be amazing. Those elbows. What a sight that would be.
2: It sounds like it, it's something nicked off Zwift, like copied over from Zwift or Mario Kart or I don't know <laughs> the Wizard of Oz
1: or the the Hammer series. Back when the Hammer series was a thing?
0: Like the Hammer, you know, stuff like that. Like the Hammer series, I think, went a little bit too far, right? It kind of like invented a whole new type of racing. It like tried to make road racing into points racing and it was a bunch of weird stuff. But like small, like individual small changes to a particular race can be kind of fun, right? This one golden kilometer thing, it's easy to understand. You know, any fan, you can explain it to them in 30 seconds or less you're not trying to like do points tallies. It's just time. People understand time. Like I think chucking little innovations like that just to see what sticks, just to see what's interesting. I think that stuff's great.
2: The best innovation I've heard that didn't stick was and I can't remember what early season race it was. This is probably going back 20 years or so. Was um that it was a team time trial a mountain team time trial but it was a team time trial to the base of the mountain. And then it was everybody for themselves up the mountain. So, like, everybody worked together to get the team leader to the base of the mountain. And then it was just like, right, send him off up the road themselves.
0: That sounds awesome, actually. It's
2: awesome. And then there was the other one that the Vuelta was throwing about probably, I want to say, 15 years ago, maybe, where they were going to split the three weeks into a a two-week and a one-week section. So, the first week was going to have multiple more small teams so i don't know say 24 smaller teams but still with the same amount in the peloton and then it was like a knockout competition after the first week so like whatever four or five teams went home who didn't make the cut and then the other teams that were still left in the race could swap out riders or bring extra riders in so the peloton swelled again so you'd have some tired legs some fresh legs yeah, is probably going back, I want to say, 15, 20 years again. Both of them ideas, I think, are awesome.
0: I'm, I'm in favor of experimentation on this front. I think it's great. We should do more of it. All right, today's Nerd Nugget. We're, we're missing all of our nerds, unfortunately. Uh, we're missing James. We're missing Ronan, who is at the IAA show. But, Shotty, you just got back from Eurobike. So I'm going to ask you the question that everybody asks each other at these trade shows. What's the coolest thing you saw?
2: Oh, it's gotta be Ronan. Like, first time I've met him in person, so it's gotta be Ronan, hasn't it? <laughs> Mr. in <Everesting> himself.
0: <laughs> He's a pretty cool guy. He is indeed He's a pretty cool guy. What about bike parts? What bike parts were cool? Honestly,
2: I'm I'm gonna probably upset a lot of our listeners here and please others, it was all the cargo bikes. So many cargo bikes. Because previously your old bike, apart from last year when it wasn't on, was just a sea of road, mountain, gravel, every bike you can think of, but not so many cargo um, cargo bikes at all. This year, that changed dramatically. I would have said it was at least 50% cargo with probably about 10% of road and mountain bike thrown in there, or 10% of bikes that weren't E-assisted. It was amazing. 90% E-assist bikes. But, yeah, it was definitely cargo took the limelight and the, the bigger halls were just full of the stuff. It was actually hard to find road-orientated products there. Like, Willier had a new gravel bike out called The Rave. That was pretty much the only sort of bike that sort of ticked the cycling tips uh, box for something that we would usually cover. There was a new stock, But all in all, none of the big brands were in attendance and it was all these crazy little brands trying to grab some limelight. Next year, though, the show is moving to Frankfurt, so it's going to be a bit of a change-up, so we'll see how that affects it, whether it brings more of the bigger brands in, because over the years, they've all dispersed, gone on their way, and done their own thing.
0: Maybe we need to move into e-bikes. Maybe... maybe. uh, I think, actually, e-bike tips has already been taken. Road.cc registered and uses e-bike tips which i think is rude of them to have taken that from us but they did that's not us e-bike tips is not us i actually just i just ordered an urban arrow no yeah yeah i did cargo bike not jealous after james talked about his so much it's pretty great Uh, they had one
2: of the biggest stands there in fact they had probably the best stand there because they had one of their cargo bikes just filled with chocolate so you wandered past filled your pockets up wandered off not bad at all, but yeah, they they yeah. were like probably the the big boys there in the the cargo hall hall.
0: Shout out to Ryan at Front Range Cargo Bikes. If you need a cargo bike in Boulder or anywhere in Colorado, go find Ryan. He dug one out for me because they're they're pretty hard to get right now. Actually, <laughs> they're really hard to get. I'm picking it up this weekend. I can't wait. Any uh. Other than the other than the Willy or any other non-E stuff or, or 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 any E stuff that you found particularly interesting, Dave? well, the other,
2: the other few little bits and pieces that we've sort of picked up on, which are also over on the YouTube channel, is there's a, a company called One K who are making a sub one kilogram disc wheel set. It's incredible. The spokes are, the spokes are basically a, a continuous fiber, and they kind of wrap click on and wrapped around their own proprietary hub and you can lace it to any, any pretty much any rim out there with their own proprietary nipples and stuff. And the wheels they had built there were 930 grams for a disc-specific pair. So they were pretty crazy. Sticking with wow. the wheel sort of stuff, there was a company called Grava, not, not the greatest of names out there, but they had... Um, s- self-inflating wheel and tire set basically so you can ro- roll along hit the gravel reduce the pressure in your tires get back on the hat the smooth surface pump them up on the fly pretty expensive That's kinda cool. it, well yeah no depend i just does it work it, <laughs> ronan had a play on it i had a chat to the guy and apparently it does work they've been working on this product for I think probably I think they said 3 4 years and they spent several millions of pounds developing it and it's going going to be launched any day now so you jump on the website to check all this stuff out
0: Yeah head over to cyclotips.com great website and also to our YouTube channel to check out everything from Eurobike and the IAA show which has oh it's the future of mobility I like to think that bikes are a big part of the future of mobility and at Cycling Tips here. We're we're constantly thinking about sort of how how we really want to talk about this stuff and how we want to cover it and and well, basically how it affects our audience, which is you out there. So if you have thoughts on that, I don't know, send me an email, editor at cyclingtips.com or tweet at me, or something like that. Because we uh, well, Eurobike makes it clear this is the this is the future of wheeled devices, and if you know, at Cycling Tips, we're not. We're not just bicycles here. We're not just bike racing. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. With that, let's drop into our chat with Jack Haig. This is how we're going to wrap up today's show. So, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, to Tom's, for joining us on the episode. And let's hear from Jack with Matt Deneef. Bye, everybody.
5: Well, congratulations on the result. Um, Wow, was, yeah, damn impressive. You must be stoked with how it all turned out in the end.
6: there and sort of put so much pressure on the build up and everything to it it would feel a little bit more, more real but
3: because after breaking the collarbone and then the collarbone surgery and the
6: fracture that I had being so bad and then at one point basically they were telling me that my season could be finished like maybe I might not even be able to come back and raise one with but how bad the fracture was wow. and then going through all the rehab process and just like all the stuff that went on and then not even knowing whether I'd race welter it until like basically 10 days before it. So I needed to have a check-up x-ray to make sure everything was healing properly. And then going to the race, helping Mikel the first week, kind of sacrificing myself a little bit that first week. Like I think, I forget what stage number it was, but it was the stage that we finished near Valencia and I had that two-kilometre really steep climb. And We had like some crosswind sections before it and I did quite a lot of work there trying to protect Mikel and we arrived at the bottom of the, the final climb, two kilometers to go. Mikel was not really too close to the front of the, the group as we entered the climb and I was a little bit further up and I heard on the radio like Jack wait so then I sort of turned around, watched as I saw Ineos riding away up the climb, yeah. waited for Mikel Rode with him until like a K to go and I was so close just to sit up sit up and just ride as easy as possible to the line. Wow. And in the back of my
3: brain I was like, ah it's only one k. All right, I'll just go. And then I, I went, and then and I'm so happy I made that sort of split sit, split second decision there to keep going to the line. Yeah. Um, like so, so many things could have happened throughout the race for the result not to have worked out the way it did. Mm. And then being kind of in fourth, only
6: with uh, stage 20, and we like we had this plan of like, oh, maybe we can attack here and try and take some time back on Lopez, so that then. In the TT, the gap isn't so big. and like, It was never really a reality because I'd kind of accepted like fourth, not a bad result <laughs> considering yeah. everything like right, really good. And I was like, oh, I was plan There's about a 2% chance this plan is going to work out. But look, I want to give it a go because I don't want to finish fourth and be like, ah, what happens if we did this? Or what mm. happens if we tried that? So like, look, I want to try, same as the stage 19 on the really steep, long, Find that um, Lopez won yeah I like guys I want to make a super hard day and just see if someone cracks just so we can try because I don't want to finish the race not having tried anything and then uh, yeah for stage 20 to all that to have worked out and Lopez pulling out me getting the right break you know being there and then coming into the the PT in third with a minute on Yatesy, I was relatively confident going in but obviously there's always a little bit of stress there yeah and then yeah for it to all finished with third it hasn't really sunk in that that's kind of the result that i got and now like i came home last night and we just had takeaway indian and i had a beer at home and we went to bed it like was completely normal and yeah. it hasn't really sunk in that like, yeah. i was on the podium 12 hours ago kind of thing
5: yeah that's crazy um Stage 20, what was your take on the Lopez stuff while it was all happening? Because we know what happened now with him pulling out and very strange scenario. But what was that like out on the road when he was distanced and, and all that?
6: Well, we didn't really know too much on the radio about him actually pulling out of the race. But it kind of all worked out that Ineos, I knew that they were going to try something because Bernal was seven seconds behind me going into the TT, and for sure they were maybe not 100 sure how I was going to TT. They probably thought Bernard would TT quite well, but obviously if you're going to be seven seconds in front, it's better than being seven seconds behind. And was a big champion, and for him to finish seventh or sixth or fifth mm. doesn't really make any difference to him because he's won already the Giro and um, the Tour. Mm. So I was like, for sure, are going to try something to try and shake the race up and get any time possible on me. And then they kind of made the race super hard. In the final 100 kilometers, we started hitting all the climbs. And after the super long climb, like about 9 k's long, there was that plateau section at the top. And that was kind of where all the attacks started happening. And I kind of knew there that something unpredictable could happen. because it's always... In those kind of scenarios where bigger time gaps are made than, say, just someone attacking purely on the climb mm. because the gap will open of quick. People will look at each other while you're riding at 40Ks an hour at the front and if people look looking at each other at 30Ks an hour. Whereas on the climb, everyone's going full and you've got a 5K an hour difference. Yeah, yeah. So but I, I knew that I had to follow Benal at the top, but if I got into the right group with... Ideally, Enric and one of the Ineos guys. Yeah. The guys in the group that was maybe eight or ten people, they probably wouldn't chase. So I was watching, trying to figure out which moves to follow because you also have to gamble a little bit there. And it all kind of worked out perfectly that Dino attacked. I came across and then I saw Enric was there, Primos was there, and Adam was there. And I just screamed on the radio to, Dino, like, go, 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 go. Let's go because I knew there was about two kilometers to the top. Went over the top started going super fast down downhill. And we heard on the radio, like, because we had wow pulls in the group behind. And I was like, wow, is anybody chasing. It's like, oh, it's just Lopez alone. It's got perfect. Like, wow. We'll take so much time on him downhill. And then we went down and downhill super fast. And the time gap
3: just started growing and growing and growing. And then we didn't really hear too much from the team car on the radio about the, what was actually happening in the group behind, other than they were going quite slow and we were taking a bunch of time on them. Hmm. I, I can't even remember whether they said Lopez, whether they told us Lopez pulled out or not. Right. But I think they maybe had kept that information not to sort of confuse us or disturb us while we were doing uh, all that work at the front, trying to put as much time as possible and trying yeah. to be quite focused there. Yeah. But obviously, then I learned about uh, everything that happened with Lopez after the stage, and it's it makes me a little bit. It's sad because I think there's so much more must have gone on mm. in the background that the media and 99% of the people in the Peloton probably didn't really know about. There must have been some kind of internal pressure or disagreement yeah. in OviStar maybe throughout the Welter or throughout the last two weeks of the Welter that kind of all accommodated to
6: the situation that happened. Yeah he ended up going out of the race because yeah and i think it, i've seen it brought up a couple of times about the whole um mental health inside professional sports i think it got quite highlighted in the olympics this year yeah and uh, especially i think it can even be more highlighted in a grand tour because you have three weeks of fatigue and quite intense racing and you have so many people around you asking questions and it's quite this high pressure situation and it doesn't take much for someone to make a split second decision mm. like what Lopez made that in the moment for him, he probably wasn't thinking straight at all and he just made that decision and now he's being ridiculed and judged upon that. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. And I probably don't want to comment too much on it because, like I said, there's not, there's probably
3: so much information that we don't know.
5: Yeah, we don't know, do we? So, um, you mentioned your team, you mentioned Gino and, and Wout, those guys seem to do a pretty awesome job for you throughout the Vuelta. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about, about that and the support that you got once they were writing for you? Yeah, um, to be honest, uh,
3: I think almost from even in Paris Nice going all the way back to there, I, I obviously changed teams and Bahrain was a new team for me. And it's quite a bit harder than maybe I initially expected to change teams and build those relationships mm. with people because essentially you're quite often asking someone to sacrifice their chances of getting a result to help you get a result. Yeah. And
6: cycling quite a strange sport in that aspect. And I think it's also highlighted at Olympics where you race the Olympic road race as a team, but only the individual that wins gets the gold medal, yeah. not the team. And I can't think of any other team sport where that's the case. Like, you don't do the 4 by 100 relay, then the person that does the last 100 meters <laughs> gets only the gold medal. Yeah, Like, that would seem super weird. But for some reason, in cycling, that's how it works. And it's a little bit different in the professional cycling world where, like, yeah, okay, you're all contracted under the same team, but... Also, at the end of the day, it's only me that's standing on the podium mm. and you're are you asking your teammates to sacrifice for you to stand on the podium and miss their opportunities. Like maybe Wout could have won a stage here and he doesn't have a contract for next year and if he got into the right break and he won a stage and didn't help me, mm. that would help him find a contract. And you need to build those relationships when you change teams so the people are willing to give everything for you and I started to notice that the people that we had in the team here in Bahrain were super nice people and super willing to help and that all kind of started in Paris Nice and as I was building up to the Tour de France I kind of knew that I had to make a big conscious effort to involve my new teammates with me and try and uh, build really good relationships with them and that happened throughout the year and it kind of accommodated now in Welter where I actually had a great time. The group of guys that we had there were super, super nice in the race, but also we had good times at breakfast and dinner, joking, laughing on the bus. And mm. they, they were incredible the whole three weeks. Even when we were riding for Lander in that first week, everyone pulled together and was doing their bit for Lander. There, And then they managed to change their mindset and really helped me in the final two weeks without an issue like they changed the mindset straight away and boom they were all in for me and everyone did an amazing job yeah yeah all the way from Jan and Yuki who were really pretty good in the the first two weeks uh in the positioning and getting good into when it was super hot and then obviously once we got into the more mountainous terrain
5: the the team was maybe more heavily weighted towards mountain support and yeah Mm. everyone did an amazing job you mentioned um, change of mindset there. What about for yourself when you go from riding for Lander to then leading the team's GC effort? How much of a switch or how hard is that switch in your
3: your head? Uh, yeah, like I said, the that first week when I was there to help Mikel, I was 100% committed to, me, to
6: him and I was quite close to just throwing away my, my GC there on mm. that final stage into Valencia and then to change the mindset after... Uh, I, I changed my mindset a little bit after I got into the breakaway, uh, I think on stage five, and then, then I moved back into the top ten yeah. uh, GC. I think I moved into seventh. And after that stage, I was kind of like, ah, the, let's give this a go until the day before the first rest day, stage nine, because we had that uh, uh, Fique, the really yes. quite long climb before stage nine. I was like, All right, uh, I'll try – conserve a little bit of energy but still definitely help Mikel if the situation is needed up until stage 9 and then when we get to the bottom of the, the stage 9 climb we'll just see who has the legs and maybe I can run a top 10 and if Mikel's really good he can then fight for her, the top 5 of the podium um, and then obviously after stage 9 the mindset completely switched and Mikel lost some time and I became
3: the sole leader mm. but the mindset changed, wasn't difficult because i kind of had gone into the tour de france yeah
6: as my goal as well and i just kind of yeah moved that across i was like okay yeah i was the leader now and i was kind of happy i had that experience and almost internal pressure that i put on myself with the tour de france as my first experience of being a leader even though it was only for two and a half days Mm. But i think it made it much easier to
3: transition during the wealth
5: off yeah I guess it gave you a second chance, didn't it? After the frustration of the tour, you, you got to then use that preparation that you'd put in for so many months and use it at welter. only—it's obviously just happened very recently. This the podium, but are you the sort of person that that stands on the podium and then goes right? What's next? Do you think I've got unfinished business at the tour? I want to go for the Giro next year, or do you just are you very good at going? I'm just going to enjoy this now and worry about all that stuff later.
6: I think if you, if you ask my wife, she'd probably say that uh, she'd want me to appreciate the moment <laughs> a little bit more than <laughs> than maybe I do. Yeah, and. I'm maybe not the person that then
3: wants to refocus on the next goal, but I think I'm the kind of person that just focuses on the next day. And mm. like
6: and all the good results I've had, Like I say, oh, yeah, that's really cool, but I need to get back to working hard again and get back to focusing. And I'm not necessarily focusing on like the Twitter friends France next year, but I'm just like, how can I be better tomorrow? Yeah. What can I do? And that's kind of i just go all right that was done that was really cool but now it's uh tuesday i'm back to either refocusing for the rest of the season or trying to figure out how to do some wind tunnel testing and optimizing the equipment for next year and or mm. well, i'm always kind of just looking forward and uh yeah I think my wife would tell me that i
5: just need to stop and yeah. appreciate what i actually did definitely <laughs> um what would you like to improve on? Like if, if you look back at the Vuelta or the Tour or whatever or, and then you're looking forward, what are the things that you reckon you could improve? I think last time we talked, you mentioned the TTs was something that you were keen on working on.
6: Yeah, and it's been something that I've been trying to put quite a bit of pressure on the team all the way from sort of the January training camp and the first couple of time trials that we did in uh, UAE and then Paris-Nice. I didn't have such good results in those two TTs and after knowing that I was, my race program was down for the Tour de France and that there were so many kilometres of time trials in the Tour Mm. that if I wanted to try and achieve a top 10 of the Tour, I knew I had to improve the TT and just with the way this year worked out and COVID and everything, I was pushing super hard to get some wind tunnel testing done to try and test the, the skin suit to see if we can build a the skin suit to test some different wheel options to test uh just basically everything to try and get some form of optimization with the equipment. Mm. And we finally organized to do some wind tunnel testing in the UK. I was gonna fly directly off to go straight to the UK, do some wind tunnel testing and uh have everything semi ready for the tour to France. It was a bit tight. But then COVID rules changed and then France got put on the red list and I couldn't fly to the UK and nothing ended up happening. Right so I'm actually trying to talk now to figure out how to make a bit of a project around the the Tt optimization because I think not just myself but the team's time trial results this year and last year maybe haven't quite represented the the skills and
3: the ability of some of the riders we have in the team, like mm. Mattei Mohoric or Jan Trapnik and Fred Wright and all these guys, are, uh, even Jonathan Milan, like he won the gold medal in the team's pursuit for Italy, but mm. he never really managed to get a half-season result on the road. And I think we're getting left behind a little bit
6: in the technology and research for the time trials, because we're seeing now the teams that are investing in that are now getting two or three, or even sometimes four riders inside the top 10, top 15. And I would think a lot of that, those results come from the investment of money and time and energy into mm-hmm. TT, research and development. Like, even now you see Cannondale, oh, uh, sorry, EF, they're starting to get some really good results in uh, time trials. Like, mm-hmm. even Magnus Court's TT on stage 21 of Welter was pretty impressive. And then Stefan Bissigar has been some really good TT results. And I think that's one come from those guys being class bike riders, but also EF investing in the aerodynamics, in the skin suit, in the new bike, and everything like this, and putting it all together. Mm. And I think I think it was maybe the Torino, uh, the Duro time trial. I think Jumbo had like four inside the top fifteen, and Ineos also had like four inside the top fifteen, or something like this. Yeah, and see those teams have invested.
3: Shouldn't have got that amount of people inside the top ten statistically. Yeah,
5: assuming that you know you guys can get the tech improved and get that right, I mean you've got to feel like finishing third at the World Tour, you should be on track for a top ten at the Tour, right? That should be possible for you.
6: Yeah, so coming back to the time trial stuff, I I, I want to try and change the time trial from me being a little bit nervous going into the stage twenty-one TT with Adam being a minute behind me. And, rather, and then being able to use the TT as a bit, of a bit of an advantage, or at least not have it as a tiny bit of a disadvantage. Because so. if you kind of look at my body type and you look at, I can obviously produce the power on the long climbs to, to stay up there with some of the best climbers in the world. I should be able to be finishing much, much closer to Primoz. I'm probably never going to beat him because he's an absolute weapon on a bike, <laughs> especially a time trial bike. But I should at least be quite a bit closer than I was yep. in the final TT. And then, yeah, of course. I think uh, if I can get a top ten or a top five in the tour next year, if that's on my race calendar, that would be a really big goal for myself. And I, one of the more important things for me is to be part of the race. Like I kind of feel as though at the welter, even if I finish like fourth or fifth, I hope from a spectator's point of view or, or from a maybe media point of view. Team Bahrain and, and myself were in the race.
3: Definitely. You saw us trying to do be, be a part of the race. I think if you just finished like
6: seventh or eighth in GC and no one really saw you in the race, then that's not really what professional cycling is about. At the end of the day, I think we're a, an entertainment sport and an advertisement for our sponsors. And if you can be part of the race and showing yourself, that's also quite important.
5: Yeah. No, I think you guys did an awesome job of that should be very proud of how it went um, what about for the rest of the season what does the the last few months of the year look like for you
6: um, I actually
3: don't know to tell you the truth <laughs> <laughs> I,
6: I'm hopefully waiting on a WhatsApp message uh, this morning but uh, in an ideal world I'd really love to finish my season now I think mm-hmm. it would help me Appreciate what I what I achieved, and take some time to spend with with my my family, my my new baby, or oh, not so new anymore, five month old baby, and <laughs> my wife, and, and then also
3: really create a bit of a project around this time trial, and uh, really focus on trying to use these four five weeks now to work on that so we can go into the winter and the preseason next year having everything done because otherwise that's get to be complicated
6: we start to do that in January, February, March and then like if you
0: sort of just get the equipment in A and then it's kind of just ready for the tour. Yeah. So uh, we'll see but uh, I could also be down to
6: uh, Lombardy and uh, Piemonte at the end of the season there.
5: Yep. Yeah cool. Oh well, either way once you get a get a break it'll be well deserved and yeah I think you can be really happy with how the season's gone. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Is there anything else on your mind, anything you wanted to add or stuff you want to say to people who are watching uh, back home? Or...
6: I'd just like to say, think I've tried to say it so many times in the interviews that I did after the race that like, the achievement that I did in Welter and all the achievements that I've done in cycling, it doesn't just happen day-to-day or month-to-month. It's kind of 5, 10, 15 years of People helping me along the way and there's way too many people to think that have been part of the journey from that 16, 17 year old, 18 year old kid to where I am now. But yeah, just to say thank you to everyone because it's about the support that all these generous people have given me along the way. because A lot of the time it is generosity from someone to support another person like myself to
3: achieve what I did.